Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast, Red Eye Edition. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how Chris does after he doesn't sleep very much. <laughs> Sean, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, not, I'm not on the red eye right now. No, you're well rested and I, I can't see it, but I'm assuming there's a bushy tail somewhere behind you. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Gonsalves, the uh, Associate Director for Communications uh, for the Community Broadband Networks Initiative. Back again, regular guest, probably at this point, I mean, second only to Lisa, probably. I mean, you know, I I, I'm starting to rack up the appearances. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we are going to talk some about a press release that you put out and a very brief report updating people on how many municipal networks there are across the United States, uh, which is pretty cool. It is. And then and then we're going to talk about uh, some of the things that I picked up in California with the uh, California Alliance for Digital Equity, as well as the Digital Equity uh, Coalition of Los Angeles, um, Digital Equity LA, Della. Uh, had a great two days out there talking with people, getting a sense of what they're doing. And uh, anyway, I had some thoughts and uh, we'll talk about that stuff today. Sounds good. Maybe anything else that pops into our heads. <laughs> That's dangerous. Okay. All right. So, Sean, what's going on with the municipal networks in the United States? Has it barely increased? I, I spent some time thinking about the proper adjective to describe it, and we say skyrocket. Um, and I think that's a pretty appropriate term because we're we're talking about since 2021, which was the last time we did a tally. We've done a new one, and now we have a database in place to better track these things. And the number is 47, 47 new municipal networks. And we should also say that with a couple of caveats, just to be clear. One is that there is no requirement that any ISP report to us when they come online. <laughs> yeah, a few of them were surprises to us. <laughs> Nor is there a simple way to just simply call up the you know FCC say and say hey tell us all the new munis who have registered with you or what have you so that number 47 there's likely probably a few more that may have slipped through the cracks but when you jump from 400 to 47 in a in in a 2 3 year span i think that's a pretty significant jump so that's that's something that that you know that should be noted and then when we say 47 new municipal networks we're talking about a variety of full retail fiber to the home citywide municipal networks in some cases about institutional networks in some cases we're talking about conduit only networks in some cases which um as we highlighted have led to some you know some some things that we'd like to see so um so the so those municipal uh new municipal broadband networks include a variety of models so to speak within the municipal broadband category and we should give some credit internally. How do we know that there are 47? Who does that work? Oh, man. Yeah. Rye um, has been leading this process for quite some time. And we should pause and give him the proper recognition because it involved going through massive numbers of spreadsheets and building a database and putting that information in there and building the database and all kinds of things that go into it. And so Rye is the one who's got his finger closest to the pulse on, on the numbers for sure. Right. Rye, uh, the research team probably helped out to some extent, but yeah. uh, 
tracking those 47 networks over the last two years uh, probably took five years off of Rise Life. <laughs> <laughs> Easily. I haven't noticed any gray hairs popping out, but maybe he's, you know, hiding it. But uh, we have a much better system now for keeping track of this stuff and even trying to go back and reconstruct some of the different records based on when networks started offering service and, and things like that. So uh, it's exciting. So um, anyway, so what's the deal? 47. Who cares? Why is this a big deal, Sean? You, you said it's it's a big deal because it's like, you know, we had about about 400 two years ago by our count. Yeah. Um, three years ago, 2021. Yep, um, three years ago, mm-hmm. two and a half years ago, technically, two and a half years ago, really, yeah. um, from the when that count was done. So, mm-hmm. why, why, what, who cares? Who cares, man? Oh man, um, right, exactly. Well, besides the people that live in those communities, um, particularly um, like communities like uh, Waterloo, um, they certainly care. Um, but I think overall, it speaks to the growing awareness that communities really can now are starting to really see that they can take their digital futures into their own hands. And I think it represents a flourishing of an alternative model after decades of relying on essentially private monopolies to solve the digital divide, to to provide, you know, ubiquitous access. And many communities are learning that if that's something that they want, they're going to have to do it themselves. Yeah. And I would, I would add to that just that I feel like these networks are coming post-pandemic, some of them were started during or prior to the pandemic. And it's a time when cable networks are getting better, a lot better. We The cable networks were pretty awful in a lot of ways back 10 years ago uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, they were better than alternatives, but they still, fiber networks at that point were so much better. And I do think that as fiber networks keep getting better, the cable networks are closing the gap. Comcast, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked about elsewhere. Comcast is doing the mid split, which if you're not technical, it's just Comcast can offer faster upload speeds than they used to. That was one of the big things cable networks couldn't do. Um, the cable networks keep getting more expensive, and that's a big issue. But like in terms of quality, I feel like if you listen to industry, they'd be like, Psh, there's no reason for municipal broadband anymore. We got everyone mm-hmm. covered, you know? Like, right, right. And so, like, what's the deal? And a lot of these places are places where they got cable networks because, like, 85% of the U.S. population has access to cable. Most of those places, it's pretty good cable comparatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's pretty remarkable that we see this growth, uh, you know, continuing, perhaps accelerating modestly uh, in a time when the technology from the private sector uh, is been improving. As we talk about actually pretty frequently, that it really isn't fundamentally about the technology. It's about community input. It's about specific connectivity needs. It's about different incentives. It's all of these things. It's about economic development and so many more things that um, communities are seeing this this infrastructure tied to. And frankly, you know, there's quite a few folks who just want choice. Um, they want competition. They want to keep their dollars in their own communities. Um, and so, there, you know, there's there's a variety of factors, I think, that lead to communities wanting to pursue uh, this particular model, even in the face of, as we've seen in some cities, even in the face of competition from existing cable uh, systems or telecom companies that are, you know, offering some form of, of of service, maybe not citywide or, you know, community-wide, but so it, there's more to it than just simply fibers better than cable. Yeah. And so one of the things that I look at when I see this list, and we'll go through it, just name a, a few of these cities just to give people a, a slight taste of what some of them are. Um, 
but one of the things I see is communities that are using rescue plan funds yeah. uh, for this. And, and that was very helpful. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's something that, um, you know, I didn't harp on early enough in and around Massachusetts where I live, because I think Massachusetts in many ways was a state where communities and maybe even the state sort of belatedly realized that rescue plan funds, that they're much more flexible. Um, yeah. And so, if only someone had just said that over and over, uh, right, and right, over right, again right, beforehand. Right. <laughs> no, because really, I think that there were, I mean, what, what state was it? I look up it was, Cassandra people, look up Cassandra in Greek mythology. That's right. I think it was the state of Wisconsin, and I don't want to like say the wrong state if it was either Wisconsin or Montana. But we'll but, pick on Wisconsin. <laughs> the, but one of those states actually said, you know what? No, we're not going to fund the our broadband program with any rescue plan dollars or any state funds. We're going to wait for BEAD. And I think a number of states probably had that thought in the back of their mind. And, you know, granted, I mean... You know, states and communities have a lot of needs, uh, competing needs. And so can't begrudge folks for saying we'd rather spend our rescue plan dollars in other directions. But certainly a lot of communities where these networks were built used rescue plan dollars to get things started and didn't wait on beat. And I think that's actually significant. Right. I I was just in Gary, Indiana, and they have a plan for a public-private partnership, which is moving forward with rescue plans. Uh, You know, Baltimore and Detroit had set those aside. These are cities that have a lot of need and a lot of fierce competition for scarce dollars that are coming in for an opportunity like this. And so, you know, they're using it in that way. And I just wanted to point out that they're able to do that because of a coalition that made sure the rules allowed for that. Yeah, because when so the way way it worked is Congress appropriated a bunch of money, and then the Biden administration writes the rules and the executive the the executive agencies, and it just so happened that for the rescue plan dollars touching broadband, it went through the Treasury Department. Treasury Department didn't know anything about broadband, right? Why would they? Mm-hmm. And and they heard from a bunch of lobbyists and from the cable companies, and they were like, you know what? Rescue plan dollars should only go to places that don't have an existing connection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's not an unreasonable thing for someone who doesn't understand this space at all to say, well, we should mm-hmm. prioritize areas that where people don't have a good connection. Mm-hmm. They didn't realize that there's a ton of places where people have a connection, but they can't use it for a mm-hmm. variety of reasons. Affordability being a major one. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, I was involved. Uh, I mm-hmm. helped out um, uh, Angelina at the National League of Cities, uh, Panettieri. Right. Um, so she really, I think, took that on. And mayors stepped up from around the United States to meet with the White House and say, if you do this this way, it's going to be terrible for all of the cities that need this help. You know, like your cities like Detroit, Gary, like Baltimore. And and so we need to make sure we have flexibility to use this money in ways uh, in neighborhoods that have major affordability issues where it looks like on the federal map, like everyone's got a high quality connection from cable. But in reality, in some cases, those networks are very unreliable. Uh, there's issues with them because, you know, if you're if you're a major corporation maximizing profits, you're not investing y- your your best gear in Gary, Indiana. Like I just saw that. I was just down there. I mean, right, exactly. And, and, and you know, there's a certain economic rationale to that, I know. But, um, you know, you, you talk about Detroit, obviously, I mean, you know, a six week Internet outage in in, yeah. in in Hope Village neighborhood. I mean, those rescue plan funds. And I believe I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think one of the things that makes the rescue plan dollars much more flexible as well is that around the rules is that 
things like affordability and reliability could be taken into account where it comes to be the only thing that matters is advertised speeds. Yeah, I want to point that out because, you know, anyone who listens to me, you know, hears me complaining constantly about the Biden FCC because they're not doing anything important. The last two weeks in particular have really heightened for me the way in which the Biden FCC has done nothing. And in part because the top goal of the person running the Biden FCC was to make sure that Gigi Sohn was not on it. Like as best I could tell, like that was her top <laughs> priority and she succeeded way to go. Um, you know, so um, they haven't done anything, but uh, the, the, the treasury department, the white house, they really listened. They got it right. They nailed it. Right. And mm-hmm. there's other agencies who are getting it right. And I'm always worried that when I'm sitting here talking about how bad the FCC is, that I'm feeding people cynicism that government can't work. Mm-hmm. When, you know, what's important is that I think local government often does a, a pretty good job, particularly when people are really engaged. And so I want to just point out that, like, you know, stuff is getting done. We're getting infrastructure. We went through four years of the running joke was like infrastructure week is next week or, you know, last week or whatever, <laughs> like, you know, and nothing ever got done. And like, you know, it feeds cynicism. But like some of the folks in the Biden administration have gotten stuff done. They should get credit because hundreds of communities are making important investments because of that. Anyway, I don't want to get I don't want to spend too much time in the past. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, so anyway, some of the networks we've seen popping up, you know, we got like Duluth, Minnesota, uh, is uh, one up here in which, uh, uh, they're focused on the lowest income neighborhood in the city. Uh, and they, they started building that out. Uh, could be a larger thing. We'll see. I think they had a mayor change that was a bit unexpected. So you never really know how that's going to go. Their sister city superior. The mayor there is one of the ones that stepped up in that campaign to make sure the white house allowed that because they weren't going to be able to invest in their downtown area. They were going to have to invest in like the more rural rich areas where there was no service and they were like but our priority is like the low income area yeah 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 um so superiors on this list of recent ones one that popped up was i don't even know this is like it may not be the only one i mispronounced but like i'm gonna call it el reno uh in oklahoma uh mm. that's one of the ones where like ride just got smacked across the face with it like never saw it coming and just like oh what's happening here they built a yeah. network yeah yeah you got a yeah. few in Tennessee. That's pretty cool. You got Lexington, got Cleveland uh, moving forward. You, got, yep. you mentioned West Des Moines. Uh, any yeah. other ones that pop up for you? Waterloo Fiber. Um, yeah. And, and, well, Waterloo Fiber I, I, is interesting because um, Iowa in Iowa. Exactly. Um, you know, the mayor, Quentin Hart, has really been, you know, out front and pushing this, you know, in his administration. But this is something that was like decades in the making in in, in terms of the planning and, and so forth. And so. So they're now building out to a city of 67,000. They just started the pilot, well, basically a test pilot with like their first few subscribers. And then in February is when they plan to go full on commercial, um, you know, with some, you know, great offerings in terms of price. I mean, look, you know, you get a hundred megabit symmetrical connection for 30 bucks a month. So even if the ACP goes away, which it looks like it, it will. And we, you know, we haven't dug into the, you know, the particular finances, but they they've got a $30 a month plan, which is, you know, relatively affordable now does it you know it doesn't make up for the loss of the acp but certainly it's not a hundred dollars it's not like you know that's what doug dawson says comcast and charter are charging when you actually get past all the fees and everything right and also of course one of the networks i highlighted uh you know in our press release was central vermont communication union district which is one of 10 but all of the communication union districts in vermont are doing a lot with rescue plan dollars and in fact a good portion of the new municipal broadband networks are among those towns that are now being covered because of all of the work that's going on in Vermont. So, right. But we didn't count any, every individual town. Cause that would put us well over a hundred. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because we're talking in these communicate, like 
it, just in the central Vermont communication union is like, I think there's something like 18 or 19 towns in their service yeah. area. Northeast kingdom is like 50 some, I think. Yeah, like, yeah, I, it's could, huge. I could be yeah. misremembering. There's a lot. Um, but then we also got these towns in New York, uh, the, the state. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Sherburn, uh, Diane. Dryden. Di yeah. Dryden, Pitcairn. What's cool about Sherburn is, and which is actually interesting to me because it wasn't until I started looking at this more carefully. I mean, I knew about Sherburn, but one thing that I guess I had overlooked is the fact that this being an open access network, and this is such a small community, and somehow they have two ISPs providing service. Hmm. Yeah, but and both of them have uh, a. Um, I think both of those are the um, the network out of Ammon. Um, yes. Um, yeah, Entry Point Systems, and I think both those ISPs are kind of like they go where Entry Point goes to make sure that uh, you know they have an initial offering. Mm, uh, mm. And so, uh, you know, one of those Fibercom, I believe, I saw was on there, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, they're popping up. Uh, I met those folks in uh, in uh, Idaho on one of my trips out there, and. Uh, you know, they're excited about doing this work. They're actually a wisp that jumped onto uh, open access fiber as well, because they were like, well, this is a kind of a no brainer to expand our number of customers and things like that. And like, the margin might be low, but it's a good business. Right. It, you know, from a, you know, subscriber standpoint of view, I mean, you want to talk about affordability, you know, especially in this, you know, as we're look, staring down the barrel of the demise of the ACP, both of them are offering a, a you know, a hundred megabit uh, symmetrical connection for 10 bucks a month. Although I think that then comes with uh, perhaps some additional uh, costs that depend on whether you pay off the connection up front or not. And so anyway, it gets a little bit complicated, but it is a a wonderful departure from uh, your annual price increases from this because I think that ten dollars a month that has not gone up in 10 years. Uh, that's been that's been stable. So um, we got to move on to other topic areas. But I did want to just note um, on the Waterloo, you were on a flow, so I don't want to interrupt you. But for people who aren't aware, Waterloo is the sister city to Cedar Falls, Iowa. And if you didn't know, Cedar Falls failed. They failed in the late 90s. They failed in the early 2000s. You, if you read the right press releases, they failed all over. I'll bet. I don't remember if they were a part of that joke study from Chris Yu at the University of Pennsylvania where they pretend it's an academic center. Um, and uh, but, you know, like it's one of those things where they were like, oh, this Cedar Falls is terrible. You know, like there's been lots of hit pieces on it. They have like 80 percent market share. I mean, like people have had choices of private providers in that market since like 1996. And the municipal network has crushed it. They're doing so well. And so they're right next to Waterloo. Uh, I certainly hope that Waterloo will have a similar level of success uh, over time. But I just wanted to note out there that if you see these claims about failures, there are municipal networks that have failed. And we talk about them because it's important to know about them. But the universe of networks that have been accused of failing, who have actually crushed it, is actually larger. Yeah. You know, it, it that reminds me to say that on one of the social media platforms where I shared this, there was a comment from someone who I think was quite cynical and didn't really offer any real, like where he was getting these numbers from, but you're not talking about the inimitable Brett. Glass, no, 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 okay, no, no, You're no, talking no, about no. a real person. Not, We're talking not, about it. Yeah, exactly. We're okay, no, 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 no. Somebody totally different. Um, he said something along the lines of, Oh yeah, but only 10% of them, you know, pay for themselves. Or I think he called it self-pay <laughs> and is it really worth spending taxpayer dollars and they're not getting a 40% take rate. And it's like, I didn't respond and I haven't yet. And I don't know that I will, but you know, I think you it, should, I'm a, I'm a fan of well, responding to that. Well, well first of all, I don't know where he's getting the 10% number. And that then, sounds like it's a Chris, you invention. I mean, like this guy, like he's just pulling this number out of his head yeah, and then yeah. it, it, and then it just breezes over like, you know, off the top of my head. I mean, 
Fairlawn Gig, who I love and I talk about all the time, they've got a 68% take rate. I think the the networks in the front range region, those four municipal networks there in, in Fort Collins and Loveland and what have you, I'm pretty sure all of them are north of 40. No, no. Fort Collins is still Fort Collins is so large that uh, they're not at 40 yet. I don't think I'd have to recheck it. Um, and I don't think Estes Park is either yet. Uh, they're also smaller and growing uh, more modestly. Uh, but, you know, Longmont is way over. Longmont's like 56, I want to say. Right. And um, Loveland, I don't know where they are. I think Loveland is across 40. Yeah, we were there and visited them. Right. Yeah, yeah, they are. So they're yeah. doing well. Yeah. 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 I think they're close to 50. But, but, the, I but guess I'll say, like, I mean, the thing about Fort Collins is, is that they needed, like, I think a 22 or 25 percent take rate to break even or something, which was like way lower. Usually places need 33, 35, 40. Mm-hmm. And so Fort Collins has not had the same um, level of growth as as Longmont, but mm-hmm. they didn't need to. And so, um, you know, they're still very successful. I also kind of ch- chafe at the idea that somehow communities like what's wrong with a community if, for example, a network is barely breaking even and the community decides, you know what, it's important enough for us to provide a small subsidy because just like other infrastructure in town, mm-hmm. you know, roads, what have you, yeah. like it's it, you know, it could very well be worth it. And so, if you if you're gonna take us there, I gotta I gotta like let's just we'll, we'll spend a little more time on this. So so the example I always use is Wyndham, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Wyndham, Minnesota is a small town. They built their fiber network after they had a referendum to build one because they didn't have anything in like 2003. And at uh, that time, the company was Quest, I think. Uh, now it's CenturyLink uh, or Lumen, depending on where you were when it all broke mm-hmm. and whatever um anyway the the telephone company was like oh no no, no. we're totally gonna invest in you don't you know vote no on the referendum so like people voted no on the referendum you need to get 65 percent in minnesota to have a telephone service so they didn't get the 65 percent and the next year quest was like ah uh, we're gonna wait another year before we invest uh, you know <laughs> you know how it is you know so so they had another referendum in 2004 2005 and they decided to move forward this is a town of like four thousand people right i mean like we're talking about i think two thousand like 1900 serviceable like you know locations it is hard to make that business model work they built the network they have a municipal electric system and everything uh in like 2009 2010 period somewhere around there um this major business fortune trucking that's located just outside of town uh you know they're they're like they're investing in a new IT system because trucking has suddenly become like instant RFPs and like bidding wars and stuff like that. And if you're out, you're losing money. And so they had this whole new system that was very expensive. And before they bought it, they checked with the telephone company to be like, hey, y'all got us if we, you know, can you supply a level of connectivity we need? And they were like, yeah, 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 yeah. And so they buy this system, they implement it, and they they call for the hookup, and the company's like, ah, you know what? We just looked at the map again, and <laughs> Can't do it. it's, it's hard, man. It's hard out there. And so... So they don't have it. So the, the general manager calls this municipal network. And now this this company is not even in Wyndham, but a lot of people that work there are in Wyndham. And and he's like, hey, man, like I'm at a hard spot here and I'm about to move a bunch of jobs to New Mexico, you know, if like we can't figure something out. And so rather than breaking even uh, and the, when they were supposed to, Wyndham is like, well, all right, we're going to we're going to build the line out to you and we're going to connect you and we're going to preserve all those jobs. Now, Wyndham took a loss. Right. And they actually covered some of that with some taxpayer dollars, as best I can tell. Like I looked into it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, this stuff, you need a, like a forensic degree to actually decipher budgets, unfortunately, whether we're talking about companies, public sector, whatever. Budgets are complicated. It looks to me, and I don't think there's a lot of, of argument, they modestly subsidized the network, right? And mm-hmm. like when I looked at it, it looked like it was about like $30,000 per job, maybe, like maybe $10,000 per job. If you look at how much money the city put into the network to make sure they could do this. If you're saving jobs with $10,000, like the any state that's creating jobs, like the programs they have, like the tax incentives and stuff, you're talking about $50,000, $60,000 per job. It was a good investment. And so you're mm-hmm. talking about a different place like Fort Collins. Fort Collins has what? Like it has more than 200,000 people, I want to mm-hmm. say. Like, certainly more than 160,000. I get confused, uh, especially when I haven't slept. And um, and so like, yeah, let's, let's, say, let's say that their take rate is 25% right now. You might look at that and be like, wow, you're taking this major investment and only like one out of four people are signing up. Yeah, the other three out of four people are getting a massive discount from Comcast and CenturyLink, right? You're talking about a stimulus into that town of millions of dollars per year because everyone's bills are lower because this city is offering this service everywhere. And over time, they're going to keep growing. That's what we see about municipal networks, right? Like, And I've seen this. I talked with uh, with uh, Mike Render about this, and Mike's been tracking this stuff for more than 20 years. And that's one of the things he says is you don't see municipal fiber networks stop growing. You know, people people unsubscribe when they die or when they leave town. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other than that, people sign up and then they don't leave. And that's and that's what happens. So, um, you know, that's the that's the trend that we see in the actual numbers, as opposed to like Mr. You with, oh, it's going to take Chattanooga 400 years to break even. And it's like, really? Because they did it last year and that wasn't 400 years. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's like 400 like nat years or something, you know, like, <laughs> like some other measurement. <laughs> Come on. Right. So also, I'll just say, like, you know, people, we don't get enough commentary um, feedback on the, you know, the the 10 people who listen to this show. But like, if you think I should do more shows sleep deprived, you know, you could you could tell us that <laughs> <laughs> the red eye edition. Yeah, right. I'm going to have more opportunities in the next few weeks because I've I've packed it in. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. So, yeah, I mean, like I, the, the comment that you're referring to, it drives me nuts because like it, it, it ignores the accounting that you have to do for right. a community network. It is not right. the same thing when an electric co-op builds a fiber network and that results in people staying in town, businesses staying in town, maybe new people and businesses coming. They don't have to make money on that network. Now, with accounting rules and state laws, they often have to break even. They can't take a loss on it. But from a, if you just look at them from the way their business is structured, it would make sense for them to take a loss on broadband internet service over the network if it would result in higher electricity sales because that's where the money is. Yeah, you know? that's a great point. So, I mean, like these things are not the sort of like, you know, you get some some group here that hires like some like, you know, uh, 25 year old anti-government person who's never actually worked an honest day in their life. They don't really know how budgets work or anything like that, you know, and they just come in and they're like slinging around all this like, oh, like they're losing money. It's like, well, maybe if you don't know what you're talking about, it looks like that. But yeah, um, a lot of the networks do well on the standard accounting. And then if you actually do the proper accounting from a community point of view, even more of the networks are uh, are are doing well. You know, you go from a majority to the vast majority of them are penciling out in terms of the actual benefits delivered. So, um, you know, that's your lecture this morning, Sean. I <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I learn something every time. <laughs> so, so a couple of things I did want to highlight, and I'm curious how you react to this, right? So, and I think you knew about this because I've talked about this before about how, and I got this idea from uh, Fresno actually originally. I think Philip Newfield 
he is very involved with the Digital Equity Coalition there. He's uh, he's at the schools, and uh, they do speed tests on all their devices multiple times a day. Um, and so, like, kids that are home, they have a sense of every kid, uh, their devices, like what kind of connection they're at at home. And one of the things they found was a shockingly high number of devices never made one connection outside of the school. Uh, and so like they know that information right that's that's good information to have um they know that um they know they have a sense of the speeds that people are actually getting mm -hmm. because they do these multiple speed tests per day on the devices that they're sending home with kids um the uh the oakland schools they actually ask uh all of the families when they're registering for school each year what their home internet access situation is really so they're building a great data set like the schools could be so involved with creating good data sets now if i had to ask how do you think the cpuc the california public utilities commission what do you think they think about this data <laughs> that it's unusable yeah <laughs> you know because it, it doesn't come from the carriers sean right, i don't know if you right. know that or not it's like, like it's not credible or it's not i don't know i yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah. I mean, like this is I'm not saying that this is the end of the story. Right. Like, I'm not saying like, oh, like you should only look at the Fresno school data and nothing else. Yeah. yeah. But like it's a part of the story, especially when you're not talking about like, yeah, yeah. Like every now and then we randomly pop off a speed test, you know, like they have <laughs> they have they've done it right. And I had a podcast with Tom Reed from Ohio in which we talked about how they have used speed test data in a rigorous way to take a flawed mechanism of understanding a connection to basically say, okay, we across all of these tests, we know some minimum things and we can work with that. Right. It's not some isolated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that kind of bureaucratic inertia, I don't know what is at the root of it, but yeah, it doesn't surprise though. It's disappointing. Yeah. Uh, other things I got is that uh, Comcast and Charter are throwing their weight around. <laughs> like, oh. We're talking about some some hard politics uh, in terms of like, you know, like uh, trying to cut some of these groups off at the knees, uh, threatening others. Um, you know, one of the things I heard over and over again is just the role that uh, Comcast and Charter executives and the companies play in philanthropy and how many organizations are uh really uh dependent on that yeah. money and will say what they need to say if comcast or charter says we need you to say this we need you to be on our corner in this issue you know from a machiavellian standpoint of view it's brilliant because it's sort of you know you're supplying a real you know need to vulnerable you know communities or organizations that are trying to do really good work and then you know you're also essentially you know wink and nod kind of capture them um in terms of you know what's acceptable or not acceptable and if the wink and nod doesn't work you're having that conversation <laughs> yeah, yeah. it goes it goes beyond subtlety yeah uh, real quick and we're not talking about i mean some of these orgs might be pulling down six figures you know like from comcast and in, in in charter and you know when it comes to comcast i'll say like I, you know, they, they fund some good, good organizations, right? Like, like mm -hmm, it's not mm -hmm. just about the quid pro quo when they need it. It might be, mm -hmm. um, but in other cases, we're talking about organizations that are like shoestring budgets that are getting like 15 or $20,000. And for them, that's is still crucial. Mm -hmm. And so we're not just talking about big money here. We're talking about little money too. And, uh, and we're going to see a lot more of this in 2024, I think with those, I mean, those companies, they are publicly traded for-profit organizations. Like, they're not given philanthropy for the sake of giving philanthropy. Because it's in the Bible or something. Yeah, it, um, it's unfortunate because when you think about it, it is actually a pretty effective way to drive a wedge in, like, the digital equity community.
Yeah. No, especially from a racial point of view, because that's one of the things we will see is yeah. we will see organizations that are doing important work, you know, organizations that are run by black people, by uh, by Hispanic folks, by any number of other organizations of other groups. And they're doing important work in their communities and they're going to come out and say, the city should not have a hard digital discrimination statute. You know, I don't think they're going to say there should be no rule, but they're going to say, we think the rules should be adjusted in this way to make sure that our patrons aren't harmed. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Like we should absolutely discourage digital discrimination, but let's be clear. Like we never want to say that charter has done digital discrimination. Right, exa right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, we want, yeah. How do we do it in a way that protects them? And, you know, and also, you know, relationships and what have you. I mean, you know, even though these companies operate in a certain way, they're certainly, you know, are filled with good people that work there, you know, as, as people. Yeah. And there's also people who disagree with us. Like, I mean, let's be clear. It's not like every, it's not like I, I understand the policy politics of every one of those groups uh yeah. but there are certain trends that you notice over time yes, yes. <laughs> if you're paying attention yes so we're gonna have a story about this soon um so i don't know the details but i know that los angeles was working on a ordinance uh not only was working on as we're recording this i believe there's a pretty important hearing today so as this podcast is aired uh something will have happened that you and i don't know about yet so uh yeah i believe that uh i don't know if it's a final vote or what but uh los angeles is today uh has on the calendar talking about this digital discrimination ordinance which is a pretty big deal um it sets in motion like i don't want to be a hypocrite and just say the fcc is doing a terrible job the way the FCC crafted their digital discrimination order, I think, and I've been convinced of because of other people that have done smart work, uh, that cities and states can use that in ways that will move forward, uh, you know, uh, hopefully uh, a, a process in which we will have more investment in low income communities and be able to demonstrate when that's not happening. None of this is going to change at the FCC. Like the 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 ordinance, the uh, the order was crafted specifically to make sure the FCC did not have to do any of this work. Right, you right, know? right. Yeah. So we're well, not going to see any more progress at the FCC. But they did give some tools to people on the ground, and the people in Los Angeles, I think, have been among the first to seize upon them. Right, and I think around probably the same time that this podcast airs, Emma Story will have been published, and it looks specifically at what different lo local communities are doing around digital discrimination and you know in in doing so you know i we were talking with bill callahan uh the the other day and you know he was just reminding us uh or giving us a bit of the you know the background of in cleveland and you know things that went on there with at&t and um kind of like you know how different parts of the city you know in terms of you know digital redlining how that came you know came about but that through the course of th that work over years, AT&T did respond. So even if there isn't this, oh, you're going to get in trouble with the FCC, there's still ways in which I think you can organize around uh, some of these issues that 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 can move the needle a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's that's a good thing, even yep. if it's even if it's not this, you know, one size fits all magic solution that magically, you know, or eliminates digital discrimination, as it were. I would wrap up that discussion in the show by saying something that I was just um, not quoting, but paraphrasing uh, one of the speakers uh, at the Digital Equity LA event, um, you know, which is that we know we're making progress when we face resistance. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like this is this is not something where it's like, oh, man, like it just it got hard. Am I doing something wrong? No, like yeah. we're talking about trying to like 
uh, fix decades of patterns of issues. Yes. And like some of that, like, I, and I don't think, and I, I want to be clear, like I say this all the time, I don't think it's Comcast or AT&T or Charter's job to fix poverty. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, right now, they're the main barrier to us addressing it in broadband, right? And so, like, it's hard to be like, I don't think they're the enemy in the sense that, like, I don't think Comcast's responsibility is to make sure everyone has a free internet connection any more than I think McDonald's should be handing out free food to people who are hungry. Like, that's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. But when Comcast and Charter are the main ones that are preventing us from having a system that will connect the people who need to be connected, well, then there's a problem. And right. that is what is happening right now. Right. You know, which is why I think, you know, um, Joshua Edmonds, uh, you know, keynote at our last or our Building for Digital Equity event in October was so good because he's in the thick of all of that. Um, yes. Addressing, you know, digital equity, addressing infrastructure issues and in in, in that whole uh, political mix. And it's it's a it's difficult uh, ground to, to walk. Yeah. So with that, I uh, hope uh, everyone has a good week. Thank you, Sean, for stepping in. Uh, we're gonna have some. We're gonna have some great shows coming up with some uh, other uh, cool networks that are that are doing good work. Uh, so um, that'll be on the docket for upcoming shows. But thanks for stepping in, Sean. Absolutely, love it. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at communitynets.org/broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow communitynets.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. (laughs) 